Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today, uh, especially if you're brand new. Uh, we're glad you're here, as Leah said before. Uh, we are in a Gospel of John right now for our sermon series, uh, which will be in for uh, quite a while still. We started a few months ago um, have, and have uh, some, some headway to make. So, But we're in chapter 3 today, verses 1 to 8. Um, this is the story of that time when Jesus talked with a man named Nicodemus, who was a religious ruler, uh, about being born again and what that all meant. Uh, today is part one. We'll uh, break for a couple of weeks after this for a couple of Christmas-themed sermons. Uh, so we'll hit pause on John for two weeks, but then come back in the new year for um, part two to this conversation. In one sense, I kind of hate to break it up because it's definitely one flow of thought and there's a lot of movement and progression in it. Uh, so we'll have to remind you all of that in a few weeks from now, but uh, there's just so much richness in it that uh, we uh, had to split it up. So uh, John 3, one date today, uh, you must be born again, Jesus says, to enter God's kingdom, which is basically an idiom uh, for being saved. So don't get too tripped up on that idea. Just what it means to enter into God's presence, uh, to be surrounded by the walls of his grace, uh, to be provided for, uh, like good kings of old uh, in the Bible did. Uh, maybe do today, you could say too, but the, the kings of old that Jesus comes to sort of uh, complete and fulfill uh, what they did, especially David, uh, he comes to do at the highest of levels. And so uh, what it means to be born, uh, what it means to be saved then is uh, to, be, to be born again. We must uh, somehow uh, have, that, have that happen to us and do that. So all right, John 3, 1 to 8, let's just read it in full to begin. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. All right, so just a few asides here before we dive a little bit deeper. Uh, Pharisees, if this is new to you, Pharisees were teachers of the law, uh, essentially, of, of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, think, um, he, he's called here a ruler of the Jews, but think like an intellectual of the day, uh, an elite, an academic, uh, maybe a seminary professor, uh, if you want to think about it that way, if that brings it kind of down, uh, down to the ground a little bit. Um, but that's who Nicodemus was, and, and he's clearly intrigued here by Jesus and some of the signs and miracles he's hearing and maybe seeing him do. Uh, at this point, remember, Jesus has called Nathaniel in a miraculous way, and he's turned water into wine. There's some other things, too, of course, that are unlisted in John, but uh, Nicodemus is hearing and seeing, and he's just, uh, like many people, intrigued. So he goes to him by night, which is kind of a cool, you get this kind of cool literary metaphor of how people of the darkness are going to the light, uh, who is Christ. This is the big thing in John 1 so far, but here it sort of plays out narratively. A man of the darkness... A person of the darkness like us is actually uh, seeing the light, and, and he's being attracted uh, to it. That's, that's what we have here happening metaphorically. And he just asks, or actually just states something to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know you are a teacher from God because of all the signs that you do. All right, so now before we look deeper into Jesus' response, it's uh, really interesting. If you have this open before you in a Bible, I don't have this on screen, but uh, if you see it, it's, it's interesting when you look at how verses 2 and 3 flow together. Because you see that Nicodemus is not really asking a question, right? He's just kind of making a statement, 
And, but then also, Jesus' response isn't directly correlated to that statement, though John still calls it an answer. So it's kind of confusing. Uh, Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher. He sort of just says that and states it. And then Jesus says, you must be born again. And so there's a sense of like, you know, did Jesus hear what Nicodemus said? Or Nicodemus maybe is thinking that. Of course, Jesus did. Um, but one broader truth, so it's abrupt. And so one broader truth I think we see here is that sometimes Jesus answers the questions that we are not asking. You know, we might, uh, because we don't know what to ask. And we might be hung up on something that in the grand scheme is not that important. And so um, Jesus doesn't uh, kind of putz around. You know, he, he graciously offers us the truth. Uh, Jesus is not like presenting here as a sage who rewards uh, people for solving riddles or something like that, right? You can cross the bridge now because you solved the riddle or something like that. But rather he presents as the answer himself who gives us things and discloses things that we're not even asking for, right? So that's a very different way of looking at religion or truth or philosophy. You know, like we're not um, asked to find and asked to figure out and to do the math and then to be rewarded for that. This is something very different. Jesus answers questions we don't even know to ask. Isn't that great? Like he did that for you. You did not know what to ask or what to, how to approach him or what to think. Uh, I didn't either, uh, but Jesus uh, offers us these things, uh, even though we're not uh, seeking. There's a lot of grace for us in that. That's actually what makes Christianity distinct from other religions, uh, and this maybe broader religious idea that, that uh, humankind struggles to figure out God on their own. Uh, that's why, you know, we, we're all sort of born into thinking, and other religions might uh, posit. But Christianity is the belief that, in, that in, instead of waiting for uh, us to figure out the answers, God makes himself known. Um, the, the Bible says in Romans 3, I'm kind of paraphrasing, it's not just there, but in Romans 3, that no one understands God until he makes himself known. No one knows him, no one understands God until he pulls up the veil or pulls up the blinder, until he opens our eyes or makes us, causes us to be born again, to use today's language with Nicodemus. Uh, and, but then, then the question, of course, then is, well, how does he do that? If we're new to this, we might ask, well, great, but how does he do that? How does God self-disclose? And the answer to that is in the person of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says in one place, I believe it's in John, we'll get there later, but he says, to see me is to see the Father. If you want to know who God is, you look at me. Uh, and that's from Jesus' perspective, right? Uh, elsewhere, God says, this is my son, listen to him. So it's like God is saying, this is how I'm speaking now. This is how you know uh, my voice. This is how you know what I'm like and what I, I'm saying to humanity is you're seeing and hearing in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. All right, so no one knows him until he self-discloses. How does he do that in Jesus? But also in uh, the most foolish of ways, uh, worldly speaking, uh, which is through a cross. And uh, 1 Corinthians 1, which actually I'll come back to a little bit later on. I could spend a lot of time there. But um, we, we see this idea that Christianity to the world is, is very foolish. And God intentionally reveals himself in foolish ways to shame the wise. Uh, which, which means that uh, he's showing the world by presenting Jesus on a cross and saying, this is the way to be saved, this, this and this alone. What, what he's also saying by doing that is, uh, is saying, Wisdom is not enough. He's saying that worldly wisdom actually is not needed. You don't need to be wise. 
You don't need to be a philosopher. In fact, that can actually lead you astray. Uh, Nor has wisdom found God by the strength of human philosophy. And so this is what Nicodemus then, a wise, intelligent, religious man, is going to start to be confronted with, okay? So uh, you might see yourself in Nicodemus, you might not. Some of you are teachers, some of you are um, in the church, you have been or are. Some of you are just outside the church as well. You might consider yourself intelligent. That's not like some huge strike, uh, so don't hear it that way, against you or uh, anything. It just means that Nicodemus is being confronted with something that is going to bring him low. Uh, He thinks he's high, but he's low. He thinks he's smart, but he knows nothing. All right, so uh, we move on then to this next big question. This is basically the the issue today is Jesus' response to what Nicodemus throws out there. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher, uh, which is kind of interesting. We got it figured out. But uh, Jesus responds, and then Nicodemus has confusion over lots of things Jesus says, uh, which is kind of par for the course for a lot of interactions with Jesus, uh, with people. Uh, but, and then what that tells us about the kingdom of God and the nature of the gospel itself. It's basically what we're going to do this morning is uh, to kind of approach this passage this way. Again, this is part one, part one of part two, um, but we're going to see still, still a lot. Okay, so what we start to see then uh, some of Nicodemus's false assumptions is in calling Jesus rabbi. All right, if you were here a few weeks ago, um, Jesse Splan preached and talked a bit about this. I'm not going to go into it in too much more depth today, but rabbi means teacher. Uh, but not just in how he uh, classifies Jesus as teacher, but in how he seems to approach Jesus as a peer. I don't know if you guys sensed this or not when I read it or when you read it with fresh eyes, but it seems like Nicodemus is kind of approaching Jesus on a peer teacher level. Uh, Nicodemus is coming and addressing him as, as teacher, but also kind of under the guise of things like Let's talk shop, Jesus, or we're a lot alike, you and me, us teacher types. Or maybe, don't worry, Jesus, I can understand the things that you're teaching, unlike those commoners over there, because I'm a teacher like you. And so I think like the the Nicodemus here, not to say he's full of arrogance, I think that you do sense uh, some genuineness here and some some genuine interest um, in him and maybe some humility uh, Nicodemus has a really cool story arc, actually, in the book of John, which we'll see him come up later um, in John as well. But this is where we first meet him. So it's not to say he's full of arrogance, but I think there is this assumption that, well, he's a teacher, I'm a teacher as well. So we, we, can, we talk the same language. And uh, what we understand, though, as, as readers, and Nicodemus certainly um, is coming to understand this, in John 3, This is not about a teacher coming to learn from a slightly better teacher. That's not what this story is about. It's not like a, you know, I got two years under my belt, or maybe Nicodemus has 20, right? He's maybe a seasoned guy. He's not saying, you know, I'm a teacher. This is not about a teacher coming to learn from a slightly better teacher. This story is about a teacher coming to learn from God. And what he learns is is that he doesn't know anything. And that when it comes to what's truly needed, he's powerless completely powerless. And that's what Jesus' waste-no-time message uh, is to, to Nicodemus. When, when he says, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again, all right? So even kind of put yourself in his shoes and think, what if I heard that for the first time and like have, you know, maybe some of you are, which is really great. Um, but think like what you would think, right? Like how would you respond to that? When Jesus says, in order to be saved, in order to enter God's kingdom, in order to see God, in order to be forgiven, 
in order to have new life, in order to have hope, in, ho- in order to have eternal life, uh, you must be born again. He's effectively saying, in order to be saved, you must do something you cannot do. In order to be saved, you have to do something that's impossible. And so Nicodemus appropriately responds with, well, who can do that? Like, who can be born a second time? Do you have any, like, peer references here? Or, or, like, or like, do you have, like, examples? Like, what, when has this been done? And in one sense, that's kind of, like, point made, right? Like, you can almost stamp it there and say, well, that's the point. Uh, in one sense, Nicodemus is not really getting it yet because he's still asking the question, what, how can I do this? Right? Which is, like, well, you can't. Like, there is no, like, there's no way, right? And we'll, we'll see how that unfolds. But, but when we're confronted with the true Jesus, this is usually how it goes. It's not about being confirmed or like knighted, you know, for having the right answer and sort of sent on our way to live a life of good works. Um, but it's about our nakedness being exposed. That's what, that's what uh, you know, coming to terms with who Jesus is uh, is about realizing we're naked, you know, realizing that we're, we're uncovered, realizing that we have massive needs that we're not even, like, within the same universe of being able to solve ourselves. Jesus elaborates in verse 5. Um, here he says, truly, 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 I say to you, unless one's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Um, born of water is kind of a strange phrase. That, that, that could mean here Christian baptism. It could be a nod to Jesus' side being pierced after he dies, which pours forth blood and water. The idea there being that we are born through his sufferings, which is true. Uh, recreated, remade through his death on the cross for our sins, which is true. Or it could be an end cap of sorts to Ezekiel 36, which is an Old Testament prophecy about a time when God would sprinkle people with water and cleanse them from sin. All right, so I think all of these have merit, but I would also say let's not neglect the same message of impossibility that Jesus is intending to kind of play on repeat here and to keep sending, which here would be how? Like, how can we be born of water? Aren't we all born of woman? Like, how are people born of water? What does that really mean? Uh, it's another sort of, you know, poke at the idea of um, this doesn't happen. Like, no one can do this. But this idea is made more clear by the mention of the Spirit. This is the, the big piece here. Uh, we'll come back to this, too, in a couple of weeks, uh, actually throughout the book. Uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world uh, is, is uh, in, in the Christian life, his role is massive for gospel theology. But here it starts to break in. Um, the Spirit in the, in the Bible, this is not just true for John, but uh, those of you who have read like Paul's letters before in the New Testament, you know this is a big duality piece for him and his letters, but um, the Spirit is always the opposite of flesh. All right, if there's one, I mean, there's lots of things, right, to know about the Bible, but if there's like, I mean, that's a good one to know, just to know, memorize. Is it, when you see Spirit, it's the opposite of flesh. When you see flesh, it's the opposite of the Spirit. But what that means, what flesh means basically is, is us. So uh, the contrast being between God's work and our work, that they're not on the same plane. They're actually at odds. They, they're kind of, they almost war against each other. The flesh uh, is our work, what we do, and the spirit is God's performance, God's work, 
God's dissension to save us, the work of the Spirit. All right, so we've already seen this, right, in uh, John 1. Many of you are here for this. Uh, this but I'm, I'm showing this to remind you, but also to say, John is really keen on this idea. This is a big deal for the Gospel of John, is to contrast grace and works, to contrast the work of Christ with our performance and what we do uh, as human beings, Christian or not, uh, is, is to separate them out. Uh, John 1, tw- uh, 12, 13, remember, said, Yet to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this is the key. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. So you see there how he's differentiating births. Like there's a type of birth that comes uh, by way of human decision and human effort. Uh, when, uh, when a husband and wife make that decision and have sex and, 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 uh, and have a child, like that's, that's a, a fleshly uh, birth, right? Uh, but, that's, but that's not the kind of birth that Jesus is talking about. Not, not the kind of birth that is required. Uh, the kind of birth that is required is to be born of God, to be born of the Spirit, to be born uh, of something that we cannot do. And so that's what Jesus is saying is to be born of the Spirit is to be born of non-work. To be born of the Spirit is to be born of non-performance, of, of the opposite of a, a moralistic idea, a worldview. To be born of the Spirit is to be saved apart from what we do. And, and so again, being born again then is impossible. And it carries kind of, I think, the same weight as things like Matthew 5.48, where Jesus says, be perfect. Oh, okay. Uh, let me work on that, you know. Um, but, or Matthew 19.24, which Jesus basically says, in order to be saved, you must pass a camel through the eye of a needle. Oh, um, Okay. Well, I'll see if I can do that later on. I mean, you have a couple of options, right? Like, do you start to go home and try this? Or do you stop, right, and listen? Or Matthew 18, your sin debt is 100 lifetimes of salary big, which is probably a conservative estimate uh, in terms of what uh, 10,000 talents was, if you know that parable, uh, the parable of unforgiving servant. It's probably, more, it's probably more than that. Some people think it was more money than existed on the planet, so, but whatever. That's, I'm not preaching Matthew 18. Uh, but the, the, it's the same spirit here. To say you must be born again is, to, it, it's meant to leave you like this, like with hands up to heaven. You know, it's, it's, it's meant to make you put down your hammer or your tablet or, what you're, or whatever, you're, whatever you're cooking with or whatever you're working to do and to look at Jesus and ask, how? How is this possible? Because it's certainly not possible by me trying to be a good person. It's not based on me obeying the commandments of God. It, it can't be done. Uh, verse 8, also, um, actually, at this point, there's a little bit of a shift because this is a little bit more on Nicodemus and us. And now the shift with verse 8 starts to say the same thing, but shift it back towards God. Um, and where, where it says, it talks about the wind, where Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So again, um, being, what this is saying is being saved is not something that comes in response to our actions, but sort of out of nowhere. From outside of us, like the wind. Not from within. Uh, it, th- what this is saying, and the wind, wind and Spirit, some of you know, is, is the same Greek word. Numos, 
and it's kind of a play on, play on words here a little bit, but um, the Spirit moves, God moves like the wind, indiscriminately. It blows as it wishes. Salvation then has to do with the will of God who wishes and wants to save us and wants to save sinners and does so on his terms, not on your terms and what you bring to God and how great your life is or how much you've turned your life around. Uh, the Bible says you cannot give to God that that, that, per, that, that, that person should be repaid. Yeah, Romans 11, I think, right? Um, th- there's nothing we bring. Wind here is, is saying the same thing. Salvation's like the wind. Not say like a clock, uh, which would be to say salvation's calculated, expected, measured. Uh, and it's not that way precisely because it's apart from our works. If it was about what you do and bring to God, it would be calculated. It would be something that you could say, this happened in response to something I did or said or didn't do. But salvation is not like a clock. Salvation is like the wind. Um, I was actually reading an article uh, by, it was a, it was a, a transcript, I guess, of an a, um, interview by a couple of non-Christians, which I thought was interesting, but it was on the topic of grace. And I was, I was shared it by someone else, but I was intrigued that they were talking about grace, the principle of grace, uh, as non-Christians. But I thought they actually, they, I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of wish that a Christian was there to sort of say, you guys are more Christian than you think, you know, when you're, you're saying these things. But um, the interviewee was saying then, she was, talk, she was talking about grace as surprise. Um, and she said, this is just a, one snippet of the whole thing, but she said, um, this is uh, Leslie Jameson. She said, I think surprise is an important part of grace. You thought you wanted cookies, but you really needed seltzer. Uh, grace, is the thing, grace isn't the, the thing you planned. It's what you get instead, which is maybe connected to why we want to uncouple it from a sense of contingency or deserving it. It's not a product of narrative or moral cause and effect. It catches you off guard. And so what she's saying here, what John 3 is saying, and what, what this is hitting on too, is surprise and not working for something are connected. Surprise and not buying something or um, working for it are, are, are the things you put together, right? If you change one of those things, then, then they end up being opposites. Surprise and not working. The, the, the question, where did this amazing thing come from, infers it didn't come from the one asking the question, right? Like if you guys ever say, where did this thing come from? That the surprise, the grace in that, the happiness is linked with, well, not from you, obviously, or are you, just, are you faking the, the surprise? Unless you're faking the surprise, right, for some show. Um, but it, it, it infers that it didn't come from within. It came from without. I was reading, reading another person, I forgot who, um, and talking to actually some more people about this the, this past week. Uh, some of you are in the room, I think. But um, who she was saying she, uh, she, this is a Christian, she was saying she hates Christmas um, because, and this is, well, she was, she was saying, I know I'm kind of a bah humbug here, but um, most gift giving is obligatory. Uh, and so one, thing she, one of the things she hates, and I actually kind of resonate with this, one of the things she hates about Christmas is um, that most gift giving is list based, you know. So like when you ask someone like, "What do you want for like your spouse or friend or your kid?" 
um, what do you want for Christmas? And they say, oh, okay, you want that thing? And then you go get it and wrap it up and you give it to them and they open up and, all right, thank you. You know, there's, this, there's no surprise, right? And she's sort of like, um, and I think what she was saying, I don't even know if she said the word hate, so um, that may be too strong. But she was saying um, that she loves generosity, but she, as a Christian, because she loves grace so much, that she loves surprise. And um, so wherever you're at with that, I'm not, you know, take that for what it's worth. I'm not saying, I, I resonate with that, but maybe I'm kind of a bah humbug. I certainly am in my family, I will say that, um, my extended, who love Christmas. But, uh, but I, do, I do too, but for different reasons. But um, I, I would just say, I, I think this is, this is true. If you, if you resonate at all with that, I think this is true in part because the grace of God is given to us in a surprising way, not in a way that you and I asked for. Right? Not in a way we asked for. It's salvation's out of nowhere, not in response to. Salvation's out of nowhere, out of, like the wind. Where'd that come from? Where'd that gust? I don't know. Was it north, south, east, west? I can barely, you know, I can't see it. That's what salvation's like, Jesus is saying. You know, which, which again for Nicodemus is uh, was probably this kind of like type A guy who thinks he's got life figured out. He's probably like, I hate this conversation right now. You know, like this is terribly uh, uncomfortable for me. This is like, this is, this is knocking the legs out from the table of everything I thought I knew. And you're t- he's taking everything out of my control. This is like terrible for, for control freaks, right? Um, good news for control freaks. Terrible for control freaks though, right? Because you can't, you can't control, can you tr- control the wind? Can you catch it and like mold it into something? Like no one can do this, Right? All right, so when you, the, the idea is this, and I want to try to make this more, a little more explicit here. When you taste the blood of Christ, you get what you don't deserve. And it's surprising precisely because we don't deserve it. Why are we saved? Like, if you ask yourselves that, why is anybody saved? In one sense, we don't know. And we, I mean, we know because we know Jesus died for our sins and we believed, of course, but in another sense, if this is true, we don't totally know why. We, don't have, we have no calculated answer for it because we didn't do anything to get it or to plan for its arrival. Like, you and I know why an Amazon package appears on our doorsteps because we purchased it and we got a delivery notice and we're following it on our phone and the guy who delivers it sends us something, right? And, but that's not so with salvation. And so we're left with, I'm surprised that I'm saved. I'm surprised that someone like me is constantly being given to by my creator because I know my sin is so big. I'm surprised by Jesus' sufferings because I don't deserve it. I'm surprised the wind blew in my direction because all signs were pointing to it blowing in the other direction. People who are better than me are not being saved but I am. Like, how can that be? People who, like, on a moral level, who are better people than me, are not being saved. They're, they, they're rejecting Christ. And yet I'm saved? Like, if you operate on a calculated, clock-like, non-wind-like, non-born-again-like basis, a religious basis, 
for what Christianity is, that makes no sense. Like, why are people who are better than me being passed over? Why are they not being saved? Oh, see, all of a sudden, we're asking the same question as Nicodemus, right? How can it be? How can this be? How? And so, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, I mentioned part of this verse or passage before. You know, we see it everywhere. And uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God, I, love, I love this, like, um, I always think of this as like a truth-filled, tough love gospel moment for the Corinthian church, you know, where he's saying, I love you guys, but you're not that great. Like you're, you know, it's probably kind of uncomfortable to look around the room, you know. He's sort of like, he's not, he's not, like, you're not like ashamed of or against making people realize that maybe they're, this is not like a self-esteem class, you know, or something like um, Christianity is like the church is, meant, is not just flattery. It's, it's saying like, just remember your roots, remember, you remember you're normal, you know. Some Christians are incredibly smart, some are, most are not, or they're average, you know. Um, and he talks about different elements there. I, I'm, I'm summarizing, but, but I love this, like, this is a good moment. We all need to have this moment. Um, we, we're not that great, but we're loved. God chose to save the unlikely to show that it's by grace we're saved, not works. God chose to save the unlikely to underscore the idea that God, God's the one who ultimately works and chooses and softens the heart and, and blows, uh, you know, um, into our life and makes Jesus beautiful. You know, so, so the idea then is like, it's surprise, you know, uh, the, the worst of humanity is being saved, but the best of humanity sometimes is not. Do, we have, do you guys have a category for that in your theology? Like you should. We might think, whoa, well, that's, that's not fair, you know. Racists and misogynists and child abusers and murderers, some of them are being saved say, like in prisons around the country right now because they're hearing the gospel and, and being saved. But the best of people, Nobel Prize winners, the best humanitarians you know, your kind grandma, not being saved. Whoa, don't talk about my grandma, you know, or whatever. Do you have a category for that? Like, if, if grace is grace and it's completely not about works, this is what I mean, this is what this is saying, right? I mean, some grandmas are being saved too, but I'm just saying, like, it's just, it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's not based on any type of calculatable thing. Because it's by grace, sometimes the wicked believe and the good do not. That's what this means, right? Have you read the Gospels recently and see who Jesus hangs out with? Like, it's the worst of people sometimes. This is why the good people are like, why are you eating with that person? They're the worst of society. Well, who would that be today? Who's the worst type of person you know? Well, it's exactly the, 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 the person that Jesus loves because he loves you. And you're that person to someone else. You're the worst person on the planet to someone else who looks at you and who you vote for and the values you have and the personality you have. And you're like the worst, but God loves you. 
and he's died for you. See how messed up and beautiful this is at the same time? It's trippy, you know? But the gospel is this rich and this offensive and this amazing and needed and beautiful. And something Nicodemus is a proud law keeper, a commandment keeper, who memorized swaths of the Old Testament, who kept all of the law, who taught people to do the same. Jesus is saying, none of that matters. None of it. He's rearranging everything around him. And the spirit, not the flesh, not the works of the flesh, but him. All right, so the, the question to go back then, and we'll um, start to wrap up for today but, and finish in, in a few weeks. If the question for Nicodemus and for us is, are, are you saying we actually have to go back into our mother's womb? The answer, of course, is no, you, you can't. But I'll, but, I'll, but I'll end with this. If you think about it, Jesus can. Though he's not interested in wombs, uh, physically speaking, he's interested in tombs. Uh, he, to, to die, and uh, Jesus, Jesus intends to die and to be buried for you and me, and then to burst forth three days later in, into new life, overwhelming death and ushering in the kingdom of God. And so we know on the other side of this, this story, uh, those who believe in Jesus are born again uh, by faith and trust in him. Uh, but here, on, on the front end, this is, um, there's all the more this like impossibility. And I think in part, Jesus is like giving a nod to how one day he will be born again. He will enter into a womb-like tomb after being crucified among criminals, dying for sinners, bleeding for you and me. As God's gift, as God's peace offering, as God's way of dealing with our sin debt that's a hundred lifetimes of salary big. For people that can't be perfect, no matter how good we are, we're a zillion, quadrillion, bazillion miles from even a whiff of him. Um, and a lot of times it's the best of people that don't realize that because they think they're good. They think they're okay. And so Jesus says here to a guy who thinks he's okay, you're not. You're loved, but you're not. And the only way to be saved is to believe in my, crucif my impending crucifixion and burial. To, to cling to it like a life preserver in the middle of the ocean. The only way to, to be saved, the only way to be born again, is to realize we can't do what's needed, but Jesus can. All right, but I'll end with this for today. We can do one thing, though, and I've been alluding to it. Um, but John says in, in one of his letters, so not, not the gospel, but same author, another one of his letters, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So, um, the, the, as maybe enigmatic or sort of, um, what's the word, abstract, as some of this might seem, it's not meant to completely paralyze you, but to move you to him. To, to trust, belief means trust, and to have faith. To be born, there's nothing else for you to do. Uh, some of you I know want that. Uh, some, sometimes in, in reading passages, you want there, more application. You want to do something more. Um, that would be to completely and totally cheapen this passage. Uh, you, would, you would miss it completely if you were to do that. Uh, there, there's nothing except believe. Nothing except receive. Nothing, Christian or not, the message is the same. 
Some of you are not Christians today. Some of you are becoming. Some of you have been for 20 years. It's the exact same application, which is that. If you have to be born, well, how? Believe or believe a second time or believe a billionth time. Trust, trust, trust that he is who he said he is. Believe that you're saved not by the works of your hands, but by the works of his nail-pierced ones. And you'll be saved, you will be ongoingly nourished and saved or saved for the first time. And that is your hope, Jesus, not religion. Jesus, not you. Jesus, the crucified one. Uh, not you, the, the self-harmer uh, or the performer or um, the hard worker. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, verse today. Thank you for this season where, uh, again, we are reminded um, daily of, of the gift that you are, uh, how God is the most generous, you are the most generous being uh, in the universe. And we, we thank you for that. And we thank you that you ask nothing in return, just simple reception and, and belief and trust that you're good, that you have uh, died for sinners, you've offered your son to become human to die in the worst of ways uh, as an advocate uh, for us. We, uh, we hail you as king for that. Thank you, Jesus, for ushering your kingdom into the world, which provides protection and nourishment, closeness to God. It is the new reality that we can't always see or taste or touch, but, we, but it's real. It's just as real as anything, and it's going to endure forever. So, um, Father, help us, help our belief, help our unbelief, where we have it, help that to, to uh, lessen, but to know that we're saved uh, by trusting you. Even as small as a mustard seed of faith is enough, um, as Jesus, you say elsewhere. So help us as a church, help us uh, as, as a group, help us individually, um, wherever we are. Please, Jesus, um, help us to have hope and trust in you this week. In you we pray. Amen.